Well, we welcome you back to Puckcast with Statsman and AJ Friends. It's Rotowire's signature fantasy hockey show. And uh, I have to say, I'm thrilled to be back after being off for a month on the, on the DL. But uh, my partner, AJ, was very patient with me. Of course, you're listening to the Rotowire's riveting duo, as we're called on the DraftKings show. Uh, I'm Paul Bruno in Toronto, Ontario. And you can follow me at Statsman22. And you can follow my co-host, AJ Scholes at AJ Schultz 24 based in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. That's very close to Rotowire headquarters over in Madison, where we've been really busy getting ready for the NHL playoffs and NBA playoffs, uh, which started on the weekend. So busy times for us and a happy time on the, on the, on the uh, sports calendar for me uh, particularly. And uh, today we welcome you back with round one edition of our playoff pairing previews and uh, before we get into that though there's a glaring omission in the landscape of the NHL uh, in terms of player participation a team that was held the record for the longest active streak is not there and uh, of course it's my buddy my buddy's uh, Pittsburgh Penguins so I got to give the floor to AJ as kind of a post-mortem on the Penguins season maybe you can give a snapshot of what uh, what went wrong and uh, what you forecast in the summer months for for your favorite club. Uh, well, I think I summed it up pretty well in my tweet the other day when I said, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out um, <laughs> in regards to the GM um, and, and uh, Brian Burke as well and the assistant GM. I, I thought it was interesting. I uh, saw in the aftermath there that the, the AGM there had been the guy who pushed uh, Hextall. He was really big on signing uh, Michael Michael. Uh, Grandland there, which was uh, a huge freaking mistake, uh, to say the least. Uh, they're just, you know, this bottom six was underwhelming. Uh, you know, the overall, Hextall didn't make, you know, there were some good choices. I, I won't say his entire tenure was bad. Trading for Ricard Raquel was good. I thought he did a, a pretty decent job on the deals that he, um, you know, kind of played hardball with Malkin and Latang to get them to sign. I thought those were good. But then you use up all that cap space to bring in Mikael Granlin, who had five points in, in 21 games, just was not good enough. And now we're stuck with him for two more years. Uh, it's going to be make bringing back a guy like Jason Zucker really hard, if, if not impossible. Um, you know, but it, it wasn't all on him. Uh, the goaltending underwhelmed. Uh, the the bottom six, as I said, was was pretty bad. I think the only you know positive to come out of this whole uh, whole thing is that I I think most people would agree watching this season that Crosby, Malkin, and Latang are far from washed up. Uh, they were definitely the best three players on the ice most of the nights and and had really good statistically solid seasons. But three guys does not an NHL team make so. Um, yeah, they, they need some improvements that I think the GM is responsible for. Uh, I, I won't let Mike Sullivan off completely here. I think uh, there are some problems uh, with the, the defensive side of the game. There are some problems with the, the power play at certain points during the year. Um, so, you know, the coaching needs to needs to be better, too. I, I think the guys are in place that can do it. I'm not suggesting Sullivan should be fired. Um, and in fact, far the opposite. I would be disappointed if he was let go. But um the front office needed to be canned months ago. So uh, glad to see they're gone. Um, hopefully we can get somebody else in uh, sooner rather than later here. Yeah, that whole thing 
didn't pass the smell test for me from the point point of view of having Hextall, uh, a guy who was most closely associated with the Flyers, I guess. the And is rumored to be going back. Might I remind you of that? I saw an indication that there are talks that perhaps he would go back to the Flyers as some part of their front office, like yeah. So, so yeah. I don't get, I don't get it, AJ. That you get going across enemy lines to get the guy that you want in your fold. And that didn't make any sense to me from the outset. It kind of reminded me of the time the Leafs had Ken Dryden as their team president and from our tribal Montreal Canadiens. So I feel for you. It was a tough season, and it's hard to waste a season of of the big three like you suggested. The the uh, well-recognized trio that leads your club year in, year out. It didn't deserve to go through a season like this, in my opinion, but that's a hell of a long run, and they're to be congratulated on that. Uh, it's a 16-year run, if I'm not mistaken, right, AJ? Correct, yeah, I believe. Yeah. Uh, if uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners out there, Twitter followers, but I believe it was the longest postseason, uh, active postseason run of any of the four major uh, U.S. sports. Yeah, I can confirm that at least that applies for the NHL. And now, uh, oddly enough, the longest tenured teams in terms of consecutive playoff matchups, one of the teams might surprise you, AJ. It's the Toronto Maple Leafs at seven years in a row. So that that kind of is a strange one. Seven years in a row, first-round exits. First-round exits, I know. (laughs) I don't want to see it it make it seven this year in that regard. We'll save that one for later. But I believe it's them in Boston, seven straight years, and nobody else with more than that right now. So Penguins at 16 was a high watermark for a while, and they'd be congratulated for that at least. And I expect that they'll uh, shake things up in the summer and and be back in contention next year. I really, I really am hopeful for you that uh, that you get a better year than you had this year. But uh, we're looking ahead now, and AJ will begin our assessment of the eight series that are before us for this playoff. Uh, round with our look at the Western Conference. The first matchup we're going to look at is between the Colorado Colorado Avalanche uh, and the Seattle Kraken, who finished in the first wild card spot. In the regular season, these teams played three close games, and in fact, Seattle won two of them. They were all one goal affairs, with two of them going to overtime. But uh, take us through what you see in terms of the the records during the regular season. We want to take a snapshot of the, the overall record. We have the net power play. We have the net penalty killing. Kind of rhyme those numbers off for both clubs, if you will, before we go into a positional assessment. Yeah, absolutely. So Colorado, uh, obviously the edge, uh, they, they won the division there. So uh, 51, 24, and 7 was the record uh, at home, 22, 13, and 6. On the road, uh, 29, 11, and 1, one of the better uh, road teams on the year. Seattle, uh, for their part, 40, uh, 46, 28, and 8 on the season, 2016 and 4 at home, 26, 11, and 4 for them as well. So, uh, again, another pretty uh, quality road team here uh, reflected in the fact uh, in the series. Uh, these teams, uh, the winner was in the three games. Uh, looks like the winner was the, the road team each time out. So, pretty interesting there. Net power play. Favors slightly uh, Colorado, 22.6 compared to 16.1. Similar numbers on the net PK, just slightly ahead for Colorado, 81.5 to 79.2 there. And to be clear, when we figure the net power play, that means you subtract the shorthanded goals the power play gave up and you add back the shorthanded goals that they scored on the penalty kill situation to come up with those raw numbers. And uh, I know uh, Scotty Bowman used to say, you should aim for net power play and net 
net PK, the sum of those two numbers should be over 100 if you think you're a contender. And it does apply for Colorado. They've made it up to about 104. And Seattle was a little bit short of that, uh, totaling 95.3. So he, uh, according to Scotty Bowman metric, that's a pretty big edge for Colorado. And uh, I think we're going to find that when we go through the positional uh, situations for each club, AJ. And I'll ask you to take a look at the uh, goaltending situation for both clubs, beginning with a look at the Avs starter, projected starter, and Seattle's goaltending situation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think it's it's hard not to say that that the edge here might be uh, for, for Colorado and Alexander Georgiev uh, really – quality season here, but could be, you know, a bit of a Philip Grubauer uh, revenge tour, if you will. Uh, you know, the former Colorado Colorado Avalanche player uh, had some really good uh, numbers, especially his his last season, won the, won the Stanley Cup with them. And so Grubauer uh, obviously out, out for a bit of revenge overall in this one, but good seasons by both. Um, Grubauer had dealt with some injuries, so only played in 39 games uh, this season, uh, whereas uh, Georgiev, a little bit more of an every-night uh, guy this year, racked up 40 wins in 62 games, should be in contention for the Vesna. And I feel like, you know, personally, I feel like that 62-game mark is about perfect for most of your workhorse netminders. You get 20 games or so off. Uh, and so, yeah, just a, a decent spot there to to be in. And uh, with that said, I think you got to give the edge though to Colorado's net mining situation. Certainly, Georgiev had a, uh, some of the best numbers across the league in terms of the numbers he posted in his first year as a as the number one starter anywhere in his career. So he had a very what you could call a pretty strong breakout campaign uh, this season to backstop the Colorado club to one of the best records in the entire league, but. You mentioned the the revenge factor on the other side of the equation. That's because Grubauer came on late in the season to regain the top spot. Marty Jones deserves a tip of the hat for carrying the load for much of the season, but uh, a healthy Philip Grubauer figures to be the starter in the nets at the other end. So that's a bit of a compelling matchup because there should be a lot of familiarity across both sides. AJ, I'll take us into a look at the Colorado defense and forward situation, and I'll get you to rebut with your comments there and then lead us into Seattle's situation. So the way that things line up for Colorado reflects the fact that they still haven't got a full complement of players when you consider that Gabriel Landeskog is still listed on the IR. That's a big loss from their lineup. And uh, Dennis Malgin listed as day-to-day another concern because he had some significant contributions in the second half of the season for this club as well. But they still have a wealth of talent up front. Nathan McKinnon finished the season with a real charge and uh, was among the top five scorers in the NHL again. Miko Randonen topped the 50-goal mark and really a case could be made that A.J. He was the team's MVP because so many players were injured around him, including a couple of both of his line mates for a period of time each. And and he just continued to score and, and uh, lead this club offensively all season long. They round out the top line with a sneaky DFS value uh, in Evan Rodriguez. Uh, a, a bit of a strange choice on the surface of it, but when you consider they, they have a, a lack of depth on the left wing. It kind of makes a little bit more sense. And so he fits the bill there. And uh, on the second line, they got JT Comfer, who was uh, 
an unsung hero for this club, but filled their second line center role very admirably for much of the season, having a career best offensive season. Arturi Lekkonen had a healthy year and produced regularly, but Valerie Nishushkin backed up a breakout year last year with another solid one this season around. So that's a pretty good six pack up front. And then uh, Lars Eller is back in the fold. Holding down the third line center role, and that's a key situation for me because there's not a lot of teams that have uh, a one-two-three punch on the western side that will equal these guys when you consider the quality that Comfort and Eller proved to produce this season. Logan O'Connor, Matt Nieto rounding out the top nine. I don't think we'll go. I'll go deeper into that uh, mix for the 10, 11, and 12 forwards here, unless you feel differently. But I'll give you a chance to rebut in a sec. Moving over to the defense, Cale McCarr had a bit of an injury plague campaign, but by all accounts is close to returning to health. He's listed as day-to-day still, but I think he's he's probably going to start tonight unless you have more information. Devin Taves emerged from his shadow uh, to play more games and score uh, a good number of points as one of the top-scoring defensemen in hockey, a luxury for Colorado to have a pair like these two guys in the fold. But behind them, the emergence of Bowen Myram continues and Samuel Garrard continues to be a plug-and-play player of some quality to round out a pretty solid-looking top four. And I know you like the third pairing in Jack Johnson and Josh Manson, two physical guys who have uh, a real presence on the back end, uh, more of a defensive side of the puck. So that's what, the way I see the Colorado depth chart at forward on defense. Uh, your comments before you lead us into a look at Seattle. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a stacked group. Um, obviously, they unfortunately won't have, you know, Landeskog for the postseason. Um, that's a, you know, pretty big blow. Um, even, you know, regardless of who gets in that third spot, I think Evan Rodriguez probably will hold on to it. But, uh, yeah, it could be in the mix. And, you know, I'll say it's it's hard to look at this group on both the forward and defensive complement and not think that they have – a slight edge compared to uh, Seattle. Uh, but Seattle has made their way through kind of an unsung group, if you will. And, uh, you know, which is kind of what you expect a lot of the times when you have an expansion team, uh, you know, not everybody's going to be the big, you know, the big dogs uh, like Vegas got, but uh, Jared McCann, Maddie Berniers and Jordan Eberle lead off the first line. McCann, a 40-goal scorer this season, 70 points, uh, production well above and beyond. Uh, you know, most uh, most years had never even gotten a 30 goals. I think both you and I, Paul, uh, would have uh, preferred during that expansion year that I would have liked him to stay in Pittsburgh, and then we traded him to Toronto, and then you guys let him go uh, without ever, you know, playing a game. I think we both would have preferred yeah. maybe to see him stick around for a little while there. Solid seasons, 20-goal seasons for both Everly and Berniers. So really a, a quality first line, even though it doesn't have the name recognition that you get in Colorado there. Jaden Schwartz, Alex Weinberg, Morgan Gigi making up the, the second line, another group of kind of solid uh, producers. Schwartz would be kind of the leading goal option on that group. And don't sleep on this third line in terms of goal production. Right now we've got Eli Tolanen. Yanni Gord and Oliver Borkstrand in the mix there, but I think Daniel Sprong could also compete for that spot. Uh, Bjorkstrand, 20 goals, Sprong, 21 goals. So this is a third group capable of scoring. So really uh, three three solid lines, uh, a fourth line. I, I will mention Brandon Tanev, Ryan Donato, 
Again, we have Sprong right there now, could switch up, but that's a pretty physical, uh, speedy line there as well that, that that might be the one spot where maybe Seattle has a slight advantage. I would say their fourth line probably better uh, than, than Colorado's. Same goes for, for the blue line here. It, it doesn't have the name recognition of, of obviously Kale McCarr, but Vince Dunn, 64 points, actually the second highest point producer on the team this season uh, behind just Jared McCann. So a really fantastic year for him. Pairs up well with Adam Larson, who's kind of the defensive-minded guy to Dunn's offense, although Larson had 33 points this season as well. Jamie Alexiak, Will Borgen, Similarly, Borgen, uh, more of a defensive-minded guy than than some others. Um, Alexiak, the physicality, just a, a hulking guy. Carson Salsi, Justin Schultz rounding out the, the third pairing. Schultz, uh, numbers, you know, have dwindled the last couple of years, but this is a guy with, uh, you know, obviously some championship pedigree. He won back-to-back Stanley Cups with the Penguins, uh, has, you know, really um, – is capable of adding offense if given the right role. I'm not sure if that's something that they will do for him in terms of minutes or, or whatnot. But uh, overall, this is a quality, quality team, you know, top to bottom, as I've highlighted here. I just don't think they have the same, you know, level of star power that Colorado does. Yeah, I would agree with you. But I think it's worth mentioning that one of the key pickups they made during the season, AJ, is Eli Tolvin. And they picked him up off waivers, which was a real boon for them that uh, they were able to plug him in right to a third line role and he thrived over here and so a key addition to round out the top nine offensively I don't think they measure up offensively on the back end with with the likes of what Colorado may offer but maybe in terms of a defensive structure one through six they they are probably at least as good as as their Colorado counterparts so uh, they win the offensive they lose the offensive side of the battle but maybe they win the defensive side but uh, all in all uh, Seattle, a fine second season in the NHL, but they drew a tough out in the first round, AJ. And that brings us to an assessment of where we see this series going. And I think we might be in agreement here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I waffle back and forth between how many games this was going to go, but uh, ultimately Colorado was always the team I expected to win. Um, you know, both these teams have been pretty good on the road. So uh, for, at, at one point I thought maybe six games, uh, with each win in a, a road matchup. But ultimately, I think Colorado gets this done in five. Um, pretty standard format. They they win the two at home, steal one in Seattle, and then close it out in game five back at home. Yeah, I, I'm in lockstep with you there. I think looking at our slate, though, this might be the only one that we agree on. So it's kind of good to get that out of the way and get into <laughs> the ones where we disagree a little bit, partner. And I'll let you lead us off into the discussion of the Dallas versus Minnesota series. Yeah, Dallas comes in uh, second in the division. They had led for most of the way, strong charge by the end uh, from Colorado to to steal away the the division title. So they end up with the matchup against Minnesota. Um, I'm sure Dallas would would tell you, uh, you know, maybe behind closed doors, they would have preferred to play Seattle. Um, But instead, they get the Minnesota Wild. Uh, Even split here, Minnesota – uh, did win both of their games in overtime. So maybe you could, in that sense, give the edge to Dallas. They won both of their games in regulation between the four matchups this year. Uh, as I mentioned, overall, Dallas with the better record by by one win. They had a few more uh, overtime overtime losses to, to get kind of those extra points there. 
Um, both these teams, pretty similar records. Uh, you know, Minnesota maybe a little better at home, 25, 12, and four compared to Dallas, 22, 10, and nine. Uh, and then conversely, Dallas better on the road, 25, 11, and five to Minnesota's 21, 13, and seven. Uh, both teams coming uh, over that magic number, Paul, that you mentioned, that over 100 in terms of combined net power play and net penalty kills should be relatively even in that sense as, as I see it. Yeah, and I think the only other thing I want to mention in terms of the overall raw numbers, Dallas's offense surprised me that, you know, when I think of the Dallas Stars the last couple of years, I think they were a defense-first club, but they actually outscored Minnesota by 39 goals on the regular season, a significant jump, and that's, of course, because they own one of the best lines in hockey. And uh, the guys that were formerly first-liners had accepted lesser roles in terms of the depth chart but really maybe contributed more than they had in prior years. I'm thinking about guys like Tyler Sagan and Jamie Benn, particularly in that regard. So Dallas did get a lot more out of those two guys and really rounded out their offense a little bit deeper than Minnesota, which may be a tip of the the hand in terms of where I might be going in the series outcome. But let's go through the exercise of comparing the uh, goalies. First of all, in Dallas, I look at uh, Ottinger, as one of the emerging top goalie, top young goalies in hockey. He had a very nice year, AJ, when the goals against averages sub 250 and save percentage almost 92%. That's pretty nice numbers and among league leaders in the NHL. And he'll be back by Scott Wedgwood, who at times performed very admirably when he was given more of a load offensively there. And on the flip side, you already touched on the fact that earlier today, I think you mentioned that you liked the Minnesota tandem and What's not to like about uh, a young goalie in, in the, uh, Felix, Philip Gustafsson who emerged uh, as a pretty good partner for Marc-Andre Fleury, uh, the age aging veteran, has done so gracefully and had another nice season behind the Minnesota team. And uh, I, I think I'm, I'm a bit hard-pressed to give the edge from one team to another because I think while Ottinger might be the best goalie of the three, I certainly like the tandem of, uh, that Minnesota offers. So it could be a situation where we will see Minnesota go back and forth in terms of the goaltending mix and, and employ both of these guys while Ottinger handles the load at the other end. I wonder if you see it the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, how how it'll play out there. Um, you know, the the annoying thing is just coming across every once in a while, some coaches insist on doing this. Dean Evison from the Minnesota Wild uh, came out today and said he won't be revealing starting net minors or player availability in the postseason. And while you and I have talked about this ad nauseum, it's just dumb. It's just yeah. annoying. Um, you know, from it's probably more annoying for, for you and I yeah. when we're trying to, you know, cover these things and, and get that information out there. Um, but it's especially bad this year when you consider the Wild could – rotate their goalies it sounds we'll touch on this later but it sounds like Carolina potentially won't use just one uh, starter in the in the postseason Minnesota could be the same way so it's a little obnoxious that they're going to do that Um, we've talked about we're surprised that the league still allows them to maybe be so close lip when you consider you know betting ramifications and all that sort of stuff um, as the leagues have partnerships with various uh, daily game and, and betting sites. So a little bit of a rant there, but annoying that we're not going to get confirmation. I do agree, though, it'll for sure be Ottinger on the other side. And then, you know, maybe a combination of, of Flurry and, 
and uh, Gustafson here uh, down the stretch. In terms of the the forward and defensive complement, I'll take Minnesota, Paul, and I'll leave you to break down Dallas. Uh, again, maybe a slight tip of the cap to where we see these team, teams shaking out there. Uh, for Minnesota, you know, the top uh, top line is going to have Gustafson. He's going to be the he, – he'll lead the way for them. As I said on DraftKings earlier today, if Minnesota were to win this series, it's going to require Kirill Kaprasov to score plenty of goals. He's got 40 of them during the regular season. Should continue to do so. He pairs up with Ryan Hartman and Matt Zuccarello. You know, Hartman really a pretty physical guy uh, for for a top line spot. You know, I think of Hartman's game. I don't necessarily think point producer had 37 points this year. Certainly a solid season. Um, just four with the man advantage. So that kind of speaks to like what his role is. Maybe distributor kind of um, going into the corners, getting the puck, that sort of thing to give Kaprasov and, and Zuccarello the space there. Second line, Marcus Johansson, Frederick, uh, Freddie Gaudreau, Matthew Boldy. Uh, Joel Erickson-Eck is going to be a factor in here somewhere. Again, Everson's not really revealing that. Uh, he was on the ice for the morning skate here, so that would seem to possibly indicate he'll be back, um, but we don't know for sure. So we'll put him as a question mark. I would expect he slots into that second-line center role as soon as he's cleared to play. Um, and then Marcus Felino, Sam Steele, and Gustav Nyquist. Oscar Sundquist, another player that's been out for a while that could factor into a third-line role here. Obviously, Gaudreau would drop to the third line if, if uh, Erickson Eck returns. So some question marks still here in the top six due to some injuries, um, but a fantastic first line uh, for sure. On the back end, you've got Jacob Middleton with Jared Spurgeon. Jonas Brodine with Matt Dumba, and then John Merrill right now with Brock Faber, uh, the collegiate collegiate star who just signed his three-year entry-level deal. Uh, my wife was pretty disappointed to hear that that happened as her Gophers lose a player of Faber's caliber. Um, solid season, 27 points in 38 games for the University of Minnesota this season. He'll uh, fill in there right now. Again, another kind of injury question mark, whether Faber remains in the lineup or not. Probably depends on John Klingberg's availability. He's dealing with a lower body injury, questionable for game one tonight. So, uh, again, they've got a decent mix of, of point producers and, um, you know, defensive uh, guys here. Spurgeon, for his part, 34 points led the way among all the defensemen. Kalen Addison is a name I didn't even mention. He's been scratched a couple times lately, um, but he actually comes in second among defensemen on this team with points, three goals, 26 assists. So they've got some options. Um, no, you know, no Norris trophy kind of studs or anything like that in this group. Um, but a, a really solid mix of defensive and offensively minded guys, in my opinion. So that's, that's how I see Minnesota, Paul, uh, what's your take. And, and then how does, uh, how does Dallas break down? Well, like Dallas, Minnesota profiled for me as a team that I thought of defensively first, but you mentioned some of the studs that they have on this team at the front of their lineup and uh, really talented guys. Brian Hartman uh, missed some time early on the season, but came on. Matt Zuccarello, one of the top playmaking wingers, and of course, Kirill Kaprasov. Whenever I tuned in the Minnesota games, he was a captivating, captivating figure, a guy that the puck seems to follow him around the ice. So I really like that top line that uh, uh, the depth that they have on, uh, in the 
The second and third lines is also considerable and, and some good quality names. Gustav Nyquist is a couple of years removed from being regular uh, leading scorer on this club, and he's in a third line role. Matt Boldy was a highlight reel waiting to happen much of the season as well. Marcus Johansson is a pretty useful guy on special teams, particularly the power play. So they have some uh, some real weapons beyond the first three on that roster offensively. You mentioned the back end. Jared Spurgeon, the captain of this club, leading them offensively from the back end. But they have quality back there in the top four. Jonas Brodeen and Matt Dumba are pretty good defensemen at both ends of the ice. So some good talent and depth on the Minnesota side of things. But Dallas's team is a team that, for me, has made a remarkable transition to become much more offensively uh, notable when you consider that they may, may ice the, uh, one of the top trios in the NHL and Jason Robertson, Joe Pavelski, and Rupe Hintz. Uh, they combined for over 100 goals offensively between the three of them, and they were three of the five players on this club that topped the 70-point mark. Again, not many teams in the NHL can say that. So uh, I have to stop thinking of them as a defense-first club, I think, based on the numbers that I'm looking at here today but uh, also kudos go to a guy like Jamie Ben AJ who really uh, bounced back if, you, if there was a comeback player uh, of the year or uh, somebody who broke out of a, a mold where he was uh, lower scoring for a couple of years and then resumed his higher scoring former rate of production Ben would be at the top of the list he was almost a point per game player here after being struggling to get four up to even 40 points the prior season. So kudos to him on a fantastic bounce-back season. And similarly, uh, Tyler Sagan, 50 points on the year. Not a bad year, but uh, better than uh, the previous one because he uh, accepted a lesser role and fit in to it better in a second-line role in Dallas that he had previously. So uh, some guys that were top-billing stars here have accepted those responsibilities uh, losing a little bit of key ice time in certain situation to make this team a better club. And at the end of the day, isn't that really what's more important? So that, to fill out that second line, though, they, they went to the trade deadline and they picked up Max Domi, who has been a good soldier on the right on the center of that second unit. Tyler Sagan will be his right wing. Yeah, you could see those guys maybe flipping assignments depending on the side of the ice, face-offs and, and offensive zone starts, depending on which which way they they face off. And then Mason Marchman had a bit of an up and down year. He was a fourth liner earlier in his career, but he managed to hold on to a top six role in Dallas and brings some physicality that is much needed on this roster. They don't want to give it uh, all that responsibility to a guy like Jamie Ben, who is one of their off top offensive pieces. Speaking of Ben, he will uh, anchor a third scoring line with Evgeny Dadanoff and Wyatt Johnson, a young guy who had a very nice stretch earlier this season in a rookie campaign. Pairing him with two veterans on that third line makes a good deal of sense for me. They'll insulate him and hopefully allow that unit to come by, come continue to be a, a plus factor for this team as, a, as opposed to a potential liability in terms of the depth chart. Uh, veteran guys Luke Lendenning and Braddock Fax to round up the fourth line, which is a credible defensive line, possibly a shutdown unit with these guys Long in the tooth on experience, they won't hurt this club offensively. On the back end, Ryan Suter has navigated another season in a lengthy career. He has all the smarts you want, a high, high hockey IQ. And pairing him with Miro Heiskanen has allowed Heiskanen to have uh, another bounce back campaign that we can point to on this roster. Another one of those plus 70 point guys. And uh, then the second pairing, more of a shutdown pairing, Yanni Hakenpa and Essa Lindell. 
noted for the defensive side of the puck more than offensively. Thomas Harley and Colin Miller, Miller, maybe the same thing applies to them, although Miller has a pretty good shot on the back end. So really, the offense for, for this team will flow through the, the top pairing on defense, and maybe they'll struggle to, to look after the defensive side more with the rest of the roster on the defensive side of the puck there. So that's the way I see the Dallas team looking depth-wise, AJ. I think this is going to be a very close series. And I'll I'll lead off with my pick, and I'm picking that that Dallas will prevail, and they're going to lean on home ice to get it done, uh, going the distance a full seven games is what I predict with the Stars emerging on top. Uh, I think it's based on the fact that they have the best line out of the the two teams, and maybe the best goalie in this set too, uh, for my money, and that's where I'm going in that direction. What about you? Well, I think you're insane if you say they have the best goalie. Um... <laughs> Minnesota has a three-time Stanley Cup champion as a potential <laughs> backup. So just going to throw that out there. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, based on recent performance, I'm totally kidding. But based on recent performance, I, I do actually agree Ottinger might be uh, the best of the, the three right now. But having said that, I think the offense of Minnesota is just really, really good. Um, I think they're getting good net mining. I like their decor. Um, so I'm going to take uh, Minnesota in, in seven. I think I agree. I think this one is going to go the distance. I think the Wild are going to have to win one on the road, but I think they do it um, potentially even tonight. Maybe they get an early start on, on the series. It does look like Gustafsson is going to start uh, at least game one tonight, but don't be surprised to see possibly Flurry. Uh, in the net for game two, regardless of the, well, I shouldn't say regardless of the outcome, right? If Gustafson comes out and pitches like a shutout, um, I would expect that he would start game two, but um, yeah. So uh, all that to say, I think it's Minnesota in seven here. I'll lead us into Vegas and Winnipeg as our other, or our next matchup rather in the West. Um, looking at the season series, you've got uh, the Golden Knights taking all three games, one of them being an overtime contest. So um, pretty one-sided during the regular season. Paul, overall, how does the record, uh, you know, PK and, and all that jazz break down for us? Well, Vegas managed to get over 50 wins again, despite the fact that they're missing a couple of key offensive pieces. We'll get to that in a second uh, with how they navigated the salary cap uh, to the end of the season, causing a little bit of controversy around the league that hopefully gets addressed this offseason. But uh, they also outscored Winnipeg 272 to 247. And then the goals against was a bit of a saw off, which is a bit of a surprise to me when you consider Connor Hallibuck, clearly the best of the goalies that will suit up in this series. But Vegas's defensive structure probably propped up the goaltending that they had on their behalf. And the home ice records, uh, pretty fair, pretty even as well. Uh, Vegas 25, 15 and 1. Winnipeg 26, 13, and 2. It was the away records, which were there was a bit of a disparity when you consider uh, Vegas was 19 games above 500, 26, 7, and 8, one of the best records across the NHL. And uh, Winnipeg was only 20, 20, and 1. So that's a bit of an advantage for the, for the uh, Vegas club. Why don't you take, us look, uh, take a look for us at the goaltending matchups? I did say that Connor Hellebuck at one of the and, ends of the ice probably gives Winnipeg the, a big edge there, but how will Vegas counter? That's a bit of a question mark. 
Well, anytime we touch on Vegas netminers, I inevitably hear it from uh, our friend Daniel Negreanu at Real Kid Poker. Um, and I'm sure I'll hear it again on this one. But I'm going to agree with you, Paul, that Connor Hellybuck is the best of the available netminers in this group. 37 wins this season, 25 losses, four shutouts. Uh, I just think he's hands above. Now, having said that, uh, Laurent Brossois, the former backup to Connor Hellybuck, uh, played in just 11 games this year uh, for, for the Golden Knights, but never suffered a regulation defeat. So a pretty strong uh, end to the season as they're dealing with injuries. 7-0-3 was the record. 2.17 was the goals against average. So um, pretty good, strong performance at the end of the year, ultimately earning himself uh, the, the starter job. Aiden Hill is back from injury and could be in the mix, although – uh, indications are he might not dress uh, for this one. Jonathan Quick likely to serve as the backup, though that's not guaranteed. Quick, a strong uh, opening salvo uh, in his time with Vegas, won uh, the first three games, but ultimately in his 10 contests, 5-2-2 two, and two was a record 3.13, the goals against average, and was supplanted by Brassois, which I don't think – I'd be surprised if the team expected, you know, acquiring Quick – to be the backup here, I think they assumed with Logan Thompson out, obviously Robin Leonard has been sidelined the entire year, uh, that Quick would maybe be the starter for them, but that hasn't been the case. We'll see plenty of Brossois, but you have to imagine he's on a short leash. If he stumbles, uh, obviously Aiden Hill is in the mix, Quick there as well. Thompson not skating yet, so I'm guessing they would probably have to make it through at least one more, like the first series if they were going to get him back, um, you know, though we don't have a specific timeline. So I think all that to say, uh, I think it's fair enough to to give the edge between the pipes to Connor Hellybuck here, in, in my opinion. Uh, Paul, you obviously agreed to that. So I'll let you pick whichever team you want to break down and uh, I'll grab the other. Okay, I'm going to look at the Vegas Golden Knights because there's a compelling discussion that might ensue. Well, good. Then, then Negron, you can get on you for all your takes. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just let you uh, die I, on that sword. I thought I'd spare you that one. <laughs> so we'll go with this following then. In terms of the offensive breakdown, Jack Eichel, the signature offensive piece here, has uh, played in fits and starts for much of the season and uh, wound up with 66 points in 67 games. I think he's better than a point-per-game player, AJ, and when he gets his footing here, uh, he could be one of the more dynamic players in the NHL. They've kind of shuffled the deck offensively uh, in terms of breaking up the second line. Carlson, Marchessault, and Riley used to be uh, a lock to play together every night, but Marchessault has been playing a lot of first-line minutes alongside Alex uh, Eichel, or Jack Eichel, rather. and then Ivan Barbashev has rounded out the unit coming over from St. Louis and fitting in here uh, in 23 games played, 16 points this season with the Vegas club and earning that first-line role. As I mentioned, Carlson and Riley are playing second-line minutes. Phil Kessel has moved up to play the, the wing position to fill out that second unit. 36 points in 82 games, well off career highs, but he's at the on the downside of his career, let's be honest. But still a guy who can be a game-breaker for this club and well worth a spot in the top six and I'm getting a look on the power play. Where it gets interesting for me, AJ, is the third unit because Chandler Stevenson has uh, been kind of relegated to a third-line role where in years past he was a lock to play top six minutes, but it gives this team a real nice depth look at the center with Eichel, Carlson, and Stevenson playing 
down the middle of the ice. But the real intrigue for me is Mark Stone is listed as as being ready to play uh, in a third line role to really stretch this offense. He was the guy that was on the LTIR for a large chunk of the second half of the season and suddenly is uh, ready to go in the playoffs. So it's the second time in, in their short history where uh, Vegas has has uh, used this this tactic to to uh, keep a guy out. Well, have a guy stay sideline because of injury. Let's call it on merit. Uh, same thing happened to Pacioretty a couple of years ago. And, uh, and don't forget uh, about Eichel. Yeah. And so they've, they've done this and they're not the only team that has manipulated uh, their way through the salary cap. It happens with a lot of clubs, but it's kind of interesting timing for me, uh, causing me to raise a spocky and eyebrow to say, see these guys ready for game one in the postseason. And uh, Stone, if he's healthy, won't stay in a third line role too long. I think I could easily see him moving up maybe even as high as first line or second ahead of March or Kessel. Michael Amadio is a guy who was a, a fourth liner for much of his career, but he has had a bit of a, uh, an uptick in his time with with Vegas. A very nice year for him, 16 goals and 27 points on the season, rounding out their uh, third line. And then on the fourth line, they have Keegan Colasar, Nicholas Roy, and Brett Howden. They'll be a typical trio to play against uh, offensively. And then uh, on the back end, I really like the top, the four-pack here. Alex Petrangelo and Alec Martinez, a real good one-two punch on the top unit. Petrangelo anchoring the power play when Shea Theodore isn't. That's two very good quarterback options there. And Braden McNabb rounding out the top four. Zach White, White Cloud is listed as day-to-day, but uh, third-pairing guy if he's healthy. And Nicholas Haig will join him there. Depth pieces, Ben Hutton, Braden Petkal, uh, and uh, Caden Corsack round out the depth chart on the back end for the Vegas Knights. I think a very deep team and uh, with the presence of Stone there, real great addition uh, as the playoffs are upon us. Well, over in Winnipeg, uh, I'll start by just mentioning it looks like they're going to get a boost and get Nikolai Ehlers back in the lineup. He had missed some uh, some time with an upper body injury, just, just the season finale. So um, he'll be back uh, seemingly without missing uh, too much time. So that allows them to have Kyle Connor, Pierre-Luc Dubois, and Mark Shifley on the top line. Uh, look, this this team is a little dependent on that top line in terms of goal scoring. You've got Shifley with 42, Kyle Connor with 31, PLD with 27, and that rounds out their guys who had 20, more, 20 or more goals this year. So they're pretty heavily dependent on that group. The second line, you've got Ehlers, who is limited to just 45 games this season. So obviously that was a factor in his production. 38 points in those 45 games. So uh, certainly capable of producing. We've got Vladislav Nemestikov moving over to, to center and Blake Wheeler on the wing. Those two could obviously flip. Uh, Wheeler, just 16 goals on the year. Still got 55 points. So they're, they're a good team, but yeah, just so goal dependent on that top line. You come in third line of Nino Niederreiter, Adam Lowry, and Mason Appleton. Um, you know, I would classify this group with, I would leave Lowry out of this. So really Appleton and Nino Ryder, just two guys that I feel like should produce more goals and, and just don't. Um, Appleton, again, only 41 games this year due to injury, had five goals. Niederreiter just uh, 22 games with with Winnipeg six goals in those contests so um, 
you know, you, you would like to see a, a little bit more out of him. Uh, I suppose if you add in his Nashville time, he did have 24 goals. So he would classify as, as a, as a 20 goal scorer for them, sort of. Um, it's a good group. It's a solid group. Whether they pair up against the Golden Knights, I think remains to be seen. On the back end, uh, this is where they may have a bit of an advantage. You've got Josh Morrissey, 76 points in 78 games this year. Just a fantastic season for him. Decent amount of that. 28 came on the man advantage. So he does, you know, get a high level of production uh, with the extra, you know, the extra guy on the ice there. He pairs up with Dylan DeMello. Brendan Dillon uh, goes with Neil Pionk. And then, uh, you know, Dylan Sandberg, Nate Schmidt, uh, Logan Stanley could also be in the mix on that third pairing. Neil Pionk uh, for, you know, Pooley's out there is probably the only other guy to offer a decent amount of offensive upside, 33 points in 82 games. Uh, DeMello had 27. Uh, they're, they're contributors, obviously, but in terms of defensive scoring, it's, it's going to be all Josh Morrissey there in that group. So um, that's the breakdown of the, the Jets, Paul. All right, then uh, what do you think? Uh, what's the outcome going to be? Well, I am going to go with uh, Winnipeg in this one. I'm going to go with them in seven, and that is solely because of Connor Hellybuck, and I think he has the gives them the edge. Um, as I said, they are top-line dependent. I, I think if Vegas can rely on um, their second and third line, they should uh, you know, challenge and, and make this a long series, maybe get a little bit more than they did during the season out of Kessel. Uh, or I should clarify, two-time Stanley Cup champion winning, Phil Kessel. <laughs> um, so if they can get a little bit more out of him, Mark Stone's return is is an X factor as well. How does he look? Um, so they could match up really well. And so that's why I think for sure it'll go seven. But for me, the Hollywood factor uh, pushes me to taking uh, Winnipeg in those seven games. Well, I know people have discounted Jonathan Quick uh, and his possible contributions to, to Vegas' circumstances. But I think... You know, he's got a playoff pedigree himself. And, and while he hasn't had an outstanding time of it this season, I don't discount that factor in kind of narrowing the gap between him and Hellebuck. I think definitely Hellebuck is head and shoulders of the top goalie in this, like we've said. But maybe the margin won't be as great if Quick can dial up some of his past playoff experience and bank on that. But I also think that you mentioned it for me, the offensive depth that Vegas has is is – a considerable advantage when I think about the fact that they can roll out three very good quality lines. I don't think Winnipeg can match that. And ultimately I think that's going to be the deciding factor in this series. I will take the Knights in the seven games. So at least we got the game number right, but it's a matter of which side of it we come out at the end of that one for bragging rights. Finally, our final matchup on this uh, Western side is a rematch of last year when Edmonton and LA matched up in a seven-game series. AJ, why don't you kick off our analysis of that group? Yeah, so the uh, Kings and and Edmonton split the the regular season series. No overtime matchups in this one. And really, like, games all over the board. You had a a 2-0 Edmonton win. You had a 6-3 Kings victory. So um, pretty wide range of, of results here. Edmonton 50, 23 and nine was the record slightly ahead of the Kings 47, 25 and 10. You look at the home matchups, you maybe give a slight edge to the Kings as they went 26, 11 and four to Edmonton's 23, 12 and six. 
And then the reverse being true at Edmonton, the better away team. In fact, their away record was better than their home record this season, 27, 11 and three uh, LA 21, 14 and six. Uh, in terms of, of the net uh, results here, the Kings coming up, uh, if I do some quick math here, just over uh, that 100 threshold. They had a 21.9 net power play, which was actually better than Edmonton's. Um, but overall, the net PK hurting the Kings uh, about four points shy. So they both are, are right around uh, that, that 100 mark. So neither one uh, a real statistical advantage uh, in that category. AJ, I think I got to apologize to you because I think that LA's, I shortchanged LA on the special teams there. I believe that their offense, their power play was one of the best in the league. So that's my error. I apologize to that, for that to our listeners. But uh, the LA power play is uh, definitely one that, that tipped the scales in their favor. They were 32.4 on the season. Net power play was 29.8. So my apologies for that. Uh, that uh, mistake on my part, Parkin. Killing me, Paul. You're killing me. <laughs> At least I caught it before anybody else caught, complained to us, AJ. Absolutely. <laughs> so with that, let's take a look at the breakdown between goalies, defense, and forwards. The goaltending matchup, maybe one of the less stellar ones in the NHL when you consider that neither one of the goal, not, neither goalie on either side could claim to have much playoff experience in the past. Stuart Skinner emerging as uh, the number one guy in Edmonton as the local kid makes good and comes pretty much from nowhere to make up for the fact that Jack Campbell had a horrible start to his first season in Edmonton. But Skinner definitely looks like the go-to guy for Edmonton to start this series at a fine year for them. And uh, it's it's a case of the the local kid making good is one of the backstories here that once you get past the signature guys up front for for Edmonton, it's a compelling one. On the flip side, you got Phoenix Copley, who was a career backup, who looks like number one on the depth chart over Eunice Corpusello, who was acquired at the trade deadline. I could see Corpusello being a factor in this series for LA before it's all said and done. Maybe a situation where both these guys show up in net. I wonder if Jack Campbell gets a, gets a sniff. Uh, maybe the only way he does is, is if, if uh, Skinner gets shelled in one of the early games. But I, I do think that uh, this is one of the less stellar goaltending matchups across the board in the first round of the playoffs, AJ. Yeah, I definitely agree there, Paul. Um, I I think we should note Skinner on an uh, 11-game streak where he didn't lose in regulation. So he's looked really, really good down the stretch here. And I'll just stick uh, with Edmonton, if you don't mind, Paul. And I will highlight uh, this group, uh, obviously, we all know who the, the class of the team is here in, in Connor McDavid. Just a, another ridiculous season, 64 goals, 153 points. Um, but he's not alone on this club in terms of offense. You've got Leon Dreisaitl also hitting the 50-goal mark with 52, 128 points for him. And then three guys on the same team getting over 100 points. You've got Ryan Nugent Hopkins coming in at 104 In terms of where they line up and how they fit into the lineup, we've got Nugent Hopkins on the top line with McDavid. Zach Hyman on the right wing should stumble into a couple uh, goals and assists here. Although, you know, no slouch on his own right. 36 goals on the season as well. Second line, we've got Dreisaitl anchoring that one with Evander Kane and Kyler Yamamoto. Um, 
you know, decent numbers for both of them when you consider both guys dealt with injuries uh, and absences. Kane, just 41 games played, but 28 points in that stretch. Yamamoto, 25 points in, in 60 or 58 games, rather. You, know, you look at Kane, his numbers, that's, that's 0. 0.6, uh, 0. 0.68 points per game, uh, would sit about third on this, t- uh, I'm sorry, not third, about fifth. Uh, fifth or sixth on the team, uh, based on just scanning this real quick. So, yeah. uh, decent, you know, decent production when he's been able to be healthy. It does definitely drop off from there. We've got Clem Clausen, Nick Bukestad, and Matthias Janmark as the third line. Derek Ryan, Ryan McLeod, and Warren Fogel as the fourth line here. So, the the production certainly dips. Like I said, three guys over 100. You've got Hyman coming in at 83. Um, and then, you know, Evander Kane is your next highest off, you know, forward point producer at, at 28 in 41 games. So that speaks to kind of that drop off there. They do get some production from the back end. Uh, Tyson Berry, 43 points, 28 of those coming on the power play. Uh, Darnell Nurse had 43 points. Evan Bouchard with 40 points as well. And each one of these guys kind of split around the lineup. Nurse plays with Cody Ceci. Matias Ekholm, the trade deadline acquisition, plays with Evan Bouchard. Uh, Brett Kulak and Vincent Desjardins uh, rounding out that that last group here. So um, obviously, you know, Barry not on the team anymore. Uh, Should have mentioned that off the start, um, but was a, a heavy point producer for them when he was here. Darnell Nurse kind of stepping into that role, Evan Bouchard as well, um, you know, and so they're, they've got some some guys here. Bouchard's been the one filling that top-line power play. Uh, so, again, for the poolies out there, keep an eye on him. Uh, anytime you're on the ice with McDavid, Nugent Hopkins, and Dreisaitl, it's easy to pick up a point or two, or at least it should be easy to pick up a point or two. So that's how I see Edmonton, Paul. Any thoughts there or uh, or dive into the breakdown of the Kings? I will dive in in a sec, but I want to mention that you highlighted the concern that I have for Edmonton in terms of a long playoff run. They haven't got a depth offensively that, that inspires me to think that they're due for a long playoff run. I mean, certainly they have the signature pieces that you want atop their roster, but it really falls off precipitously to the point where they can't even ice two full scoring lines when you consider Yamamoto had a pedestrian year in a third a second line role marred by injury of course but uh, still 25 points in 58 games that that's not even a 40 point pace on a season for a projected second line player so it's just not good enough and not inspiring me to be on the bandwagon of so many others who have said oh this could be Edmonton's year in the Western Conference I do think they have enough to to push back against LA that's a bit of a tip in terms of where I might lean in this overall series. But that's more because when I look at Los Angeles, AJ, I see a team that's not at the top of their defensive game. They have uh, only allowed three goals less than Edmonton, who are notorious for being a poor defensive team. So that just tells you how far things have dropped off in Los Angeles. Of course, uh, the quality of goaltending, a bit of an issue there, but certainly the lack of depth on defense, which I'll touch on sh- shortly, is another uh, concern for me when you look at this club. And uh, they have the nice one-two punch at center that I always like to highlight, and Philip Deneau and Hansi Kopitar, two of the better two-way centers in the league, but they have to be on the top of their game here because they got their hands full with the two best offensive centers in hockey on the other end of the ice. So that's going to be the, the game within a game to see how the centers saw off in this series and uh, 
two of the best, like I said, two of the better defensive guys at center on one side, certainly two of the top on the offensive side, on the other side of the puck. Very compelling matchup for me. Uh, I like to watch the pivots uh, most nights anyway, but this will be really something that, that kind of decides the fate of the series. In terms of the way uh, L.A. rounds out their squad offensively, Adrian Kempe has been a fine offensive find here. Quinton Byfield finally taking a bit of a step in his development, rounding out the top unit there, but uh, he's still wanting in terms of offensive production. 22 points in 53 games, not great, but he's there more for his size and, and the potential that he has uh, on this team. But uh, I think I think that uh, there's a ways to go there uh, to, to shore up that top unit. The second line kind of looks like a better one for me when you consider the no centering Victor Arvidsson, who had a nice offensive year, and Trevor Moore, when healthy, was a pretty good spark plug for this team offensively as well coming up with 29 points in 59 games. Incredible season for him. So the third line, uh, as they try to stretch the roster, they put a guy like Alex Iafalo, who was a top six player for much of the season. They put him on a third unit with Arthur Kaliev on the opposite wing and Blake Lazat at center. So Lazat, a bit of a drop-off from the other two guys at center, but uh, still a decent-looking third line for me. Maybe still better than anything that Ed- Edmonton's going to put out there. And then uh, they got a couple of pluggers on the fourth line, Zach McEwen and uh, Rasmus Kupari alongside Carol Grunstrom, a more skilled player in that mix. On the back end in, in L.A., it's still a matter of Drew Doughty and the, the cast of uh, relative unknowns, though Sean Dersey has a real nice offensive upside to his game that has shown from time to time, and he had a thir- nice 38-point season in 72 games played, so maybe the credible second offensive threat. But they picked up Vladislav Gavrikov who, to shore up their defense and be a really good second-pairing guy with Matt Roy in a, in a very tough shutdown pairing that I see in that in that sense, relegating the likes of Alexander Edler, a power play specialist at times, to a like a spare part role in Los Angeles. That's a pretty nice spare part to have if he's a, a healthy piece there as well. So uh, I think there there no, there's no question. There's a huge disparity versus the offensive Edmonton in terms of the upside, but uh, the defensive structure of LA is going to be key here, and it's going to be challenged. And the centerpieces on the top two lines at, at the pivot position will go a long way to saying just how much of a chance L.A. has in this series, in my opinion. And with that said, A.J., um, I'm going to go to you to say, what do you think about the eventual outcome in this set? Yeah, I've been back and forth on on the number of games that this will go. I, I definitely think Edmonton is going to win this series. Um, I, I I'm going to land on five here. And I think the only way it goes long is if Skinner has a a tough outing or two that extends this. But like I said, he's been really, really good of late. Um, You know, I mentioned the the 11 games without a regulation loss. It's actually been even better in his last five games, uh, just a one goals against average over that stretch, uh, including a shutout win over, the Kings. So uh, he's looked pretty good. Uh, actually faced the Kings twice over that stretch, gave up just one goal in two matchups against LA in the last five games. So he's got their number right now. Um, and so I, I'm going to take them to win in five. How about you, Paul? I'm right with you in lockstep. I just can't trust the fact that LA has fallen off their best defensive game as a team this season. And I'd feel a lot better if they had that structure intact but I'm right with you. I'm saying Edmonton in five as well. So with that said, partner, let's take a pause to give our sponsors some airtime. We'll be back with some news and notes from around the league pertaining to the Eastern Conference 
quarterfinals that get underway uh, this week as well. You're listening to the RotoWire's podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That's what stats Ben and AJ will be back after these messages. Okay, we're back, and this time, AJ, in a bit of a departure, I'll give the weekly reminder about how to get people in touch with us to give you a bit of a breather and get you ready for the first series that we're going to look at, Boston and Florida. Folks, we've had a, a lot of fun fielding a lot of questions from you over the season in terms of your weekly prep and, and the trade deadline issues that you have in your various leagues, and a few of you have come back and kindly credited us with the success that you've enjoyed in your in your leagues. We thank you for that bit of recognition. And we're really happy to share uh, some of the better questions from time to time during the course of the season. You can be sure that you can certainly still continue to reach out to us. If you want to find AJ, follow him at AJSholes24. And you can reach me the stat, at Statsman22 with any residual questions you may have or uh, off-season prep. We'll get into more of that later on in our series of off-season episodes. But you can get the jump on that if you're so, so inclined. We'll be happy to share, as I said, some of the better questions that we get from your uh, request in the interim. So with that, let's take a look, AJ, at the first of the Eastern quarterfinals that will break down with Boston and Florida. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Boston has been uh, the toast of the league all season long. 65, 12, and 5 was the record here. Florida uh, edge is squeaking in uh, in terms of the, the last wild card spot. 42, 32, and 8 was the record. Boston's numbers, uh, you know, slightly better at home, 34, 4, and 3 to 31, 8, and 2. But, uh, you know, pretty pretty significant record regardless of where they were playing. Uh, for Florida, 23-13-3 at home, just slightly better ahead of a 19-19-3 away record. So pretty standard for, for playoff caliber teams. You see slightly better home records uh, than away more often than not. Um, you know, the, the numbers here, the – Net PP for both teams right about 19. In fact, uh, if if Paul's numbers are correct this time, <laughs> uh, the Florida Panthers actually ever so slightly better on the net PK, but or the net power play. Um, but it's the net PK where the advantage comes big time for Boston. 91.1 there compared to 78. So um, they nearly get uh, over that hundred mark with the net PK alone for Boston. So. Um, that's how the kind of series breaks down uh, during the year. Boston, they actually split the series. Boston winning uh, two games, Florida winning one in regulation and one in overtime. Um, but certainly that didn't stop the Bruins from being just a juggernaut throughout the league. So that's the breakdown there. Paul, how do the goaltenders look? Well, of course, the Boston tandem, the stingiest of the NHL. And you've got to be looking at Olmark to play if he's healthy. And there is a bit of a question mark here. Jeremy Swayman also listed day-to-day. So while, while they were healthy during the season, this is the first time really that both of them have been iffy. That brings the name of Brandon Boosie into the mix. And you wonder if he'll get, a, he'll get a cameo here. But I have to believe that one of the two veterans will be in the nets here, unless you have better information than I do. Certainly, they, they give the advantage over Florida, that minus situation, if they're healthy. Alex Lyon, though, is a guy who's, who leapfrogged over Sergei Bobrovsky and the, the injured Spencer Knight to be the goaltender that likely will start in the Florida net. You would have made a lot of money if you made that bet earlier in the season, I think. But Lyon has come on with a bit of a rush at the end of the season, winning six of his last eight decisions and really commanding the net in that entire time frame. So kudos to him for t- taking the job at the most critical time and uh, giving him a bit of a d- different look in nets. But... Uh, I, I throw it back to you and say, do you have any other better information in terms of the likely starter for the Bruins tonight? We don't, unfortunately. Um, sounds like uh, they have both been dealing with uh, an illness. Um, Olmark was not on the ice for the optional skate. Uh, Swayman was, so it, it, it could be uh, that that we will see uh, perhaps Swayman tonight uh, and Olmark maybe later to, based off that, but, you know, no, no clear confirmation. Uh, I'll run through Boston and, and add uh, before I do that uh, Patrice Bergeron is also questionable tonight. It appears to be an illness running through the team. Uh, those are the possible subtractions. The additions are we are for sure going to get David Krejci in. So that's good news for them, especially if Bergeron can't go. Nick Foligno trending towards being in. Um, and then uh, Derek Forbert will be in the lineup as well. So some some good news, some bad news, and we'll have to see how it all shakes out. We're going to go on the lines based on the fact that Bergeron won't be in tonight. He had previously uh, 
been reportedly dealing with an upper body injury in addition to potentially being sick. So let's assume Bergeron's out and we'll go through the lineups for what that would look like tonight. You would have Brad Marchand playing with Pavel Zaka and Jake DeBrusque on the first line, Tyler Bertuzzi, David Krejci, and David Pasternak making up the second line. So if Bergeron returns, he slots into the first line. Pavel Zaka would likely move to the second line on the wing with David Krejci staying at center. Bertuzzi dropping to the third line where he would join Taylor Hall and Charlie Coyle. Um, Nick Foligno would be a fourth line option for them as well. So a bit of a jumble here. Reminder, if you need to check that for DFS or playoff pools, run over to rotowire.com. We've got all the latest information for how that breaks down on the site. On the back end, Dmitry Orlov and Charlie McAvoy pair up. Hampus Lindholm and Brandon Carlo. Derek Forbert steps in. Matt Grzelczyk is the one we're expecting to be dropped from the lineup. Forbert will pair with Connor Clifton. Look, this team is exactly as it has been all season long, all year long. David Pasternak leads the way in terms of goals. Marchand, Bergeron are all capable of chipping in. Uh, Obviously, I like this team better with Bergeron in because it gives them both Tyler Bertuzzi and Taylor Hall on the third line, which is a really potent duo. Uh, The power play is going to have Marchand, Bergeron, Pasternak on the top one uh, if they're both in. Uh, probably with Krejci, maybe DeBrusque, um, and then Lindholm uh, as the blue liner here. So they, they've got a ton of offensive talent throughout lines one through three uh, and really match up dangerously well. And, and even without Bergeron out, you know, you've got Taylor Hall on the third line, Bertuzzi with Pasternak on the second, Marshawn on the first with, with Pablo Zaka. Like even without Bergeron in, they've got three quality scoring line. It's just they get that much better, not only obviously adding Bergeron, but in terms of depth uh, when he's in the lineup there. So this is a team that's going to be hard to beat. They have been all season and hard to beat in the playoffs. Paul, your thoughts on Boston uh, or uh, or take us into Florida Panthers? Well, I think when you look at the stats, the individual player stats for the Bruins, you think, wow, no wonder they did as well as they did. They got eight guys with over 50 points. That's a luxury that no other team can point to. And the defensive structure is, of course, unequal. So it's rare that a team leads the league in scoring and defensive metrics. And no wonder they had a record-setting season this year. But if there's one team that I think that that could throw a little bit of a scare in them in the first round among the contenders in the wildcard hunt, Florida would be my pick, AJ. And it's because they have a very nice looking depth offensively and a three pack of defensemen on the back end who have that offensive upside to their game as well as a good solid defensive acumen. And I mentioned that the emergence of, of Alex Lyon and the Nets, they're kind of bringing a little more stability to the goaltending situation than, than the shakiness that they experienced with, with Bobrovsky in the fold. He's certainly still not living up to that big ticket contract that he has, but uh, certainly gives them a, a second option if Lyon should falter. But uh, it's the offensive upside of Florida that gives me hope for them. And I'll take us through a breakdown of that grouping. When you consider they've got one guy anchoring each of the top two lines, it's interesting to think that they could round up two solid scoring lines, but that's what they've done. Alex Barkov, a really unsung player in terms of, he's kind of like Patrice Bergeron light, if you will, sometimes I think, when when you consider he's a big, rangy guy with a, a very good offensive game, but also a very credible defensive side 
to his uh, to the game structure and a physical presence as well. Uh, so he will anchor the top unit, Anthony Duclair and Carter Verhage, his wingers, uh, as they line up in the top line. Verhage quietly put together a 42-goal season for this club uh, to lead the team in goal scoring, something a bit of a surprise, but uh, speaks to the quality of that first, first unit. Second unit, Anton Lundell is at centre with Matthew Tuchuk anchoring that scoring unit and Itu Lostarainen rounding out that third position on that roster. 43 points got a guy for uh, a year for Lostarainen rounding out that second score, scoring unit. So credible six-pack up front. Even the third unit has uh, Sam Reinhardt as a, as a quality scoring option. Eric Stahl uh, anchoring the centre position and Ryan Lomberg a real pest to play against on the third line. You notice I haven't mentioned Sam Bennett, AJ. He's been on the IR for a bit. He's traveling with the club, not expected to make his debut in this series tonight, but possible for early on in this set too, and really gives another added offensive piece to the mix to to further augment the scoring options that they have there. I mentioned three-pack of defenders that have the offensive upside. Aaron Ekblad was a signature offensive piece from the defense for years here, but he's been passed by Gustav Forsling and Brandon Montour, two uh, lesser-known players who have had great offensive seasons and certainly can handle themselves in their own end. To round out the four-pack, Mark Stahl, one of the better defensive defensemen in the NHL, and then a third pairing is marked by one of the toughest, meanest players in the, in the league in Radko Gudis, worth a mention there, uh, to make it five credible options on the back end. One of Josh Mahura, Michael Benning, or Casey Fitzgerald will round out that six-pack, but those first five names are pretty formidable as a, as a part of that group for me. So with that said, AJ, any, any thoughts for you on does Florida actually have a chance in this set? I, I'm going to say... I, I think that they're going to give Boston a bit of a surprise. I think the biggest surprise could be tonight. I, I have Florida winning this game tonight because of the uncertainty about around the Boston roster. But I still think that Bruins have way too much depth and too much going for them that they, they won't be toppled in this series. But it'll go a little longer than most people think. I, I call the Bruins in six. Yeah, tonight's uh, question marks had me uh, waffling a little bit on the number of games here. But I still think if there's any team – that could pull off a, a sweep. It's it would probably be Boston. Um, I don't anticipate that, but I do think it'll close out in five games. So a little bit quicker here uh, than than otherwise. Now we get to the matchup. In fact, Paul, <laughs> I almost want to make you skip this. I almost want to hold it to the end. Should we skip it? Should we do sure. Carolina the Islanders next? Sure. Let's. All do right. It. We're going to torture Paul a little bit longer here before we get to uh, Toronto and Tampa. So we'll go, we'll talk Carolina against the Islanders uh, and, and uh, looking at the, the regular season series, it was mostly Carolina. They got three wins out of four contests. The Islanders did get one there. Carolina 52, 21 and nine uh, compared to New York's uh, 42, 31 and nine home record. Uh, pretty, uh, Pretty standard for what I what I said before. You've got uh, 28, 10, and 3 at home for Carolina, 24, 11, and 6 on the road. The Islanders, 25, 13, and 3 at home. Uh, losing record on the road at 17, 18, and 6. So a little more dependent on the home record. Um, looking at the, the net PP, net PK numbers, pretty much the same. Both of them... Uh, look okay. I will point out the Islanders did not get over Paul's 
Paul's uh, 100 threshold here coming in at about 99 point something. Um, so close, but not quite. So that's how the series breaks down. Paul, do you want to take us through the netminders? Yeah, I think there's some concern on the Carolina side. The history of Freddie Anderson, not very inspiring. And I saw most of it uh, uh, in Toronto, but he has had a bit of an, uh, an injury plague campaign here and has given way to both Peter Kachekov and Antti Ranta. You probably will see more than one goalie on the Carolina side. They will probably start with Freddie Anderson, who, when healthy, should be the number one guy. Uh, they're here. actually starting ranting in tonight. Well, there you go. See, the up-to-the-minute information has been changing here, and uh, that just speaks to the uncertainty that I have on the Carolina side. It kind of feeds uh, feeds me to my ultimate position here. It makes me feel better about that pick with that bit of information as well. On the Islanders side, they do have one of the better goalies in hockey and they get the big edge in the Nets when you consider Ilya Sorokin has had another fine season backstopping this club, a heavy workload coming his way as well, giving them, I think, a big edge in the net mining situation and making this a potentially much closer series than a lot of people might uh, anticipate at the uh, up front. So with that said, AJ, you can have the choice. Do you want to take the Carolina side or the Islanders and lead us through that? Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take Carolina here. Um, I agree pretty much with your, your assessment on the netminers. No additional thoughts here. So in terms of the Hurricanes, um, obviously some, some tough breaks on the season. You've got Andrei Svechnikov for sure will not be back. Mash Pacioretty, we haven't really heard much out of him. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing he's probably not going to be back unless they made it a like really deep run, but that Achilles injury um, pretty much rules him out. So we're going to factor in both those guys out permanently. Andre Kasha, another player we haven't really heard a whole lot about since uh, he was out and, and likely in a similar situation, we won't see him. So Tuvo Teravainen uh, sitting uh, in the, the first line left wing spot with Sebastian Ajo. And Seth Jarvis there, uh, Stefan Nosen, uh, Jasperi Kochkanemi as the, and Martin Nekash as the second line, Jordan Martinhook, Jordan Stahl, and we should just call them Jordan Fast, but we'll call him Jasper Fast instead, <laughs> marking out uh, that third line. So a pretty, um, again, I, I would say, you know, a pretty top-heavy group uh overall but there's no one player that was hands above in terms of the goal scoring here aho with 36 nekash with 28 uh sveshnikov with 23 from there you've got you know uh caught kanemi at 18 a pair of uh blue liners brent burns and, and brady skate skate also at 18 so the goaltending a little bit more spread out, but not a lot of, uh, you know, kind of big name production from anybody here. Uh, I mentioned uh, Burns and, and Brady Skay. They'll headline the defenders in terms of offensive production. Burns playing with Jacob Slavin, Skay with Brett Pesci, and then Shane Gossesbear with Jalen Chatfield. Uh, Gossesbear, really a, a resurgent uh, kind of career year in Arizona 31 points in 52 games with them. Numbers not as great with uh, since joining Carolina, just 10 points in, in 23 games. But I think both of them should be uh, a pretty solid here uh, in, in terms of production. Um, you know, they've got kind of three options on each of their pairing. So I, I like this team overall. Um, 
you know, their, their depth, you've got kind of veteran guys in Paul Stastny and Derek Stepan on a fourth line as well. This would be a much better team. No, no question about it. If Andrei Sveshnikov was still on it, uh, Pacioretty would add a, a significant boost here as well. Um, but they're going to have to make do with what they have. Uh, not, again, like I said, not any huge one score leading the way uh, other than, as I said, you know, Aho with the most goals, but even he didn't reach the the 40 goal mark uh, this season. And on the Islanders side, AJ, when you compare the depth of this, this team, I like their three pack of, of uh, first three forwards on, uh, on each of these lines here. Uh, Anders Lee, the captain of this club, had a nice offensive season. Matthew Barzal, a bit of an injury plague campaign, but point per game player still. And then Bo Horvat centering that top unit has really liked his time so far with his new club. Although the offense, I'd like to see him more than 16 points in the 30 games that he's been playing for them this season. But I think you can count on a better rate in the postseason. Brock Nelson, another offensive threat at center on the second line, flanked by Kyle Palmieri, a very good playoff performer for this club, 33 points in 55 games. A bunch of these guys missed chunks of the schedule, but when you look at the points that they produced, better than 40-point 40, 40 pace on the season for each of the five guys mentioned. And then they rounded out with Pierre Engvall, who has given, been given more ice time than he was given in Toronto and has produced nine points in 18 games played, still playing too soft for my liking, the games that I've watched, but rounding out the six-pack nonetheless. It's the third line that gives me some reason for hope here too because I think they're better than their counterparts on the Carolina side when you consider J.G. Peugeot and Zach Parise as two-thirds of that unit, Hudson fashing rounding out that group. And then, of course, a fourth line that I will mention every chance I get with the Islanders, Matt Martin, Cal Clutterbuck, and Casey Sezikis, driving opponents crazy with the level of physicality that they bring to the table. I think they're going to make life miserable for a lot of players in Carolina who really don't like to play that physical style of game. They add to that uh, one of the top shutdown pairings on defense that they'll lead off with to silence the top-end Carolina guys. That's Adam Pellick and Ryan Pollock. Pollock blessed with a pretty good shot from the point, too, when he gets on the the PP, but most of the, that assignment will go to Noah Dobson, who was otherwise relegated to, relegated to a third pairing role. Sebastian Ajo, Scott Mayfield, and Samuel Bolduck pressed into service as well because Alexander Romanov is going to be out for the first couple of games. I think he'll be back in the series, AJ, when it reverts back to the Islanders in games three and four. So I like the depth of the Islanders' offense a little bit more than, than the Carolina club, which is, as you say, a little bit top-heavy. And it kind of narrows the gap between these two clubs, in my opinion. And in fact, I will go out on a limb and say that I'm going to take the Islanders as my upset on the eastern side of the ledger, taking the series in six games played. They play a, a tough, tight-checking style. I think that's going to be driving Carolina crazy in this set and will ultimately tip the tails in this favor. In this favor. Yeah, for me, um, I, I I couldn't do it. I couldn't pick the Islanders. Um, there's just... You know, yes, they're they're a hard to play against team, um, but Carolina, I, I think, has uh, maybe the better defenders in terms of offensive upside, um, uh, and I like their top line a little bit more. Uh, so overall, I I I went the other way. Uh, I went with Carolina in six myself. So we'll we'll see this one. For me, probably the closest uh, where I was I was hedging one way or the other in terms of team, not just uh, game. So I'm I'm going to go Carolina on this one. 
Uh, let's uh, let's keep it rolling, Paul. We'll keep your torment going for one more series as we push uh, Toronto and Tampa off one more round here and go with the Devils and the Rangers. Uh, pretty even regular season. Uh, you could argue the edge goes to the Devils as both their wins came in regulation while the two Rangers victories. Oh, I'm sorry. I miss, you know, <laughs> misread that. So uh, definitely going to the Devils. They won two in regulation, one in overtime. The Rangers only win in the three game yeah. series came uh, power in overtime the, here. So you look at, uh, look at the series overall, New Jersey Devils, uh, fit, or the season overall, rather New Jersey Devils, 52, 22 and eight overall record. Uh, actually a better road team than a home team. They had 28, nine and four as the away team, 24, 13 and four at home. And that's true of the Rangers as well. Just not quite as significantly here. Rangers 47, 22 and 13 overall, 24 of those wins coming uh, away uh, overall in terms of net PP, net PK, Pretty much even overall, slightly better net power play numbers for the Rangers, slightly better net PK uh, record for the New Jersey Devils. So um, should be a pretty even matchup. Looks uh, like that uh, breakdown pretty good. Paul, the netminders, I'm guessing you aren't going to say that that's a pretty even breakdown between these two teams might lean towards one or the other. Or am I wrong? Are you a Vitek Vanasek uh, aficionado? I am, actually. He's had a very nice season, kind of a second tier of the top goalies in the NHL is what he emerged to, to become. Uh, he was very helpful to me in my regular season on a couple of clubs that uh, where I thought he might be a guy that got more of the edge in there on a team that played among the best hockey of, of any club in the NHL season. So pretty good found money in terms of Vitek Vanasek. Maybe uh, the loyalty that I have to him it kind of makes me say those things, but uh, certainly on the other side, you're looking at one of the best goalies in hockey in Shesterkin, not to be overlooked at all or undersold as one of the top guys, and he'll be in the Vesna hunt when that, when that trophy is handed out this year as well. So that's uh, that's the way I see it as well, AJ. And uh, I wonder how, how you think about uh, the defensive side of the puck for and the forwards for the take one side, and I'll take the other. Yeah, I'll go with uh, I'll go with the Rangers in this one. Uh, again, maybe a little bit of a tip to where I see this series going here. Um, you know, this for me is one of the deeper teams, and I, I really like their forward complements. You've got all kinds of um, combinations here. Top line: Chris Kreider, Mika Zibanejad, and Patrick Kane. Uh, I don't think you can undersell the contributions, both uh, in terms of actual on ice play as well as Kane uh, having, you know, some, some championships to his name. So uh, I think that gives them a, a really formidable top line. Artemi Panarin, Vinny Trocek, and Vladimir Tarasenko on this second line here, just veteran guys who are goal scorers, who are very capable. Uh, you know, obviously Tarasenko has struggled with uh, the injuries last couple of uh, last couple of years, some shoulder problems, but so far so good, really healthy. And then I love this third line, their their youngster line, Alexis Lafreniere, uh, Philip Hito, and Capo Caco making up that group. Uh, I, I just think top to bottom, these first three lines are really good. They're really strong. Uh, the temptation at, at times has been to pair up some of these younger guys with uh, the veterans. 
Uh, and it really, I won't say it's worked poorly, but it just seems they play better with each other, which uh, would, you know, kind of go against what you would normally expect that maybe the the veteran play would, would get them over the line here. But, um, you know, just a, a ton of production throughout this lineup, uh, you know, Zabinijad, 39 goals, Kreider, 36 goals, uh, Patrick Kane, uh, for his part, uh, numbers with the Rangers were uh, five goals in 19 games, 12 overall points on the season, 21 uh, goals overall. So plenty of multi, you know, 20 goal producers throughout this lineup. The blue line, I, I like this group as well on the blue line. Ryan Lindgren with Adam Fox. Fox obviously being the big uh, name defenseman in terms of production, 72 points this year. Uh, really great campaign by him. Jacob Truba is usually the name that you would have expected to be the second producing defenseman and a good year by him, 32 points in 82 games. But Keandre Miller has stepped uh, up in, in that role, continues to look better and better, in my opinion, uh, 43 points this year, more than doubling his point production from last season, starting to get a little bit of work uh, with the power play. And in fact, at today's uh, practice, they had Miller and, uh, on the, you know, the defensive quarterback for that number two group uh, ahead of uh, Jacob Truba. So he could uh, be out there and look, this second group uh, for their power play is Miller, Trocek, Hedl, Tarasenko and Lafreniere. Really strong uh, second group there. Uh, obviously, the, the top one is hard to beat as well. So. Really just a fantastic lineup, in, in my opinion, top to bottom. Nico Mikola, Brandon Schneider round out uh, that that third pairing there. So it's hard to find, for, you know, for my money, it's hard to find problems with this lineup uh, as long as they're healthy. I, I like this group, and it's why, uh, to tip my hat, it's why I'm favoring them in this matchup. Paul, tell me why maybe the Devils would be the better option based on their uh, lineup and how it looks. Well, to me, first of all, this is one of two series, and we saved them for the last, where there's going to be two really good teams out of the playoffs in the first round. And that's a shame, but it's also a testament to the quality of the top 10 or 12 teams in the league that you can't, no matter what format, what format you choose, you're going to lose a very good team very early on, maybe a couple, and maybe more if there's an upset. But on the devil side of the puck, AJ, there's a half dozen players here that are credible offensive pieces. They scored all, over 20 goals apiece including one defenseman, Dougie Hamilton, kind of, kind of for 74 points. But you've got five other forwards who scored at least 20 goals and at least 48 points to round out that offense and give you a sense for how deep it is up front when you consider the way they line up. Nico Heischer, Dawson Mercer, and Thomas Tatar on that top line. Nico Heischer, one of the formerly a number one overall draft pick. Jack Hughes, another high draft pick, anchoring the second line and leading this team offensively. Jesper Bratt emerging as a as a 30-goal shooter in this league this year. And Andre Palat coming over from Tampa and reprising his top six role, doing it quietly but efficiently and really rounding out a solid six-pack up front where there, I don't see any weakness here. Uh, Dawson Mercer, an emerging talent, uh, anchoring uh, the second line alongside Nico Heischer, giving him a really nice look on the top six. But then the third third line is an interesting one for me too. too. Timo Meyer, the big prize acquisition at the trade deadline, has been in a third-line role here with Eric Hall at center and Jesper Boquist in a chance to really stretch out this roster. I think Meyer could be a real uh, asset to this club in the playoffs. Uh, that's why he's here. 
14 points in 21 games played, a little bit less than the scoring rate that you anticipate for a guy like him. Maybe he's a guy that could be uh, emerging as a, more of a scoring option than he's shown so far, but a nice ace to have in your, in your depth chart here when you consider the third line role that he's in. Then on the defensive side of the puck, I mentioned Dougie Hamilton, the best piece by far that they have on the back end. Damon Severson, more of a power play specialist, relegated third line minutes. John Marino, a guy that you know a little bit about from his time with Pittsburgh, on the, anchoring the second pairing with Ryan Graves. Yo, Jonas Siegenthaler getting first line reps more as the defensive conscience on the pairing with Hamilton. And Kevin Ball rounding out the top six with Damon Severson, uh, maybe the le- lesser known uh, aspect of the Devils defense the defense core. But I think that both of these teams are flashy offensive groups and they both play a very good uh, sensible style of defense too. They're probably mirror images of one another. And that's why for me, this is probably the toughest series to handicap, but I'll jump ahead of you and say that I'm taking the Devils in this one, AJ, in seven games played, just because I think the gap between the goalies is not as wide as some others would think, and that the uh, firepower uh, and maybe the top scoring defensemen uh, reside, uh, the edges reside marginally on the Devils side of the ledger. Yeah, I'm going to disagree (laughs) and say uh, that the, that the Rangers uh, roster, I I feel like is, is too deep for, for them to handle. They've got a stud, uh, you know, producer at the same level, you know, Dougie, Dougie Hamilton, Adam Fox, both elite uh, offensive defensemen goalies. Even if you call them close, I I just think the forward depth is too much. So I'm going to take the Rangers in six, I think uh, they they ended a little bit sooner than uh, than you might. So, all right, Paul, I've tortured you long enough. We can get to the Tampa Toronto matchup here that uh, we've been expecting since about I don't know January. Um, yeah. It looked like these two teams were going to face off. Uh, the season series went uh, in Toronto's favor. They got two. Regulation wins. Tampa's one win was an overtime victory. Definitely uh, no way around it. Uh, Definitely a a down year for Tampa compared to the last three, three seasons Uh, for them. Toronto looking to end their six year stretch of losing in the first round. They enter having won 50 games uh, this season, 21 losses, 11 overtime uh, home record 27, eight and six compared to Tampa's home record of 28, eight and five. So pretty similar there, a better away record for Toronto than Tampa, probably the difference maker between these two teams. Uh, Toronto went 23, 13 and five on the road while Tampa Bay actually, again, an, another team with a losing road record, 18, 22 and one doesn't bode well for a team that does not have a home ice advantage. They're going to have to figure out at minimum would have to figure out how to win one on the road while, while defending Amelia arena there. So that's how it breaks down. Paul, how does the goalie matchup look in these two teams? Well, I, before we go there, I'm going to also try and sway you in the course of this discussion. AJ. (laughs) Tampa's record in the last 20 games in this season was sub 500. And that's not the way you want to go into a playoff. I don't care what you say. I don't know how a team turns a switch on or off to get ready. But that's a pretty big sample size where they were under 500. And that includes their all-world goalie who performed less than stellar. That's my preamble to what we look at in the goalie matchup. 
On paper, Andrei Vasilevsky head and shoulders above almost anybody in the league when you go one-on-one. But you point to the goals against average on the teams, the Leafs allowed 32 goals less. And that's with uh, a lot of goaltending changes made through the course of the year. I I think it speaks to an overall defensive structure that the Leafs have that's been better than Tampa's this season. And that's why they have home ice advantage, and that's why they finished with uh, about 12 points more than than Tampa did in the regular season. If I do the quick math, I think it's 12 or 13 anyway. But uh, Celia Samsona figures to be the guy in Toronto. He, he has ranked among the top five in a lot of goaltending categories. Again, as much credit to him as the defensive structure of the club. They're one of the stingiest in terms of allowing shots on goal. And uh, he has benefited from that. But also he, his record in terms of slot shots is uh, one of the best in the league as well. So facing high danger opportunities, he's measured up and stood up very well and very tall for this club. There is some word that Matt Murray is going to be the backup goalie of record. I say that because I expect both these goalies to play in this series at some point. But uh, Samsonov will get the lead role. And uh, I don't think... I know Tampa doesn't have that luxury at the other end, but you know that Vasilevsky is going to be in there for every minute anyway. So it's, he's just one of the half dozen goalies in the league that plays the lion's share of his team's goal in that, that mining assignment. So that's no surprise at all. But I do think Samsonov shouldn't be undersold as a credible opponent at the other end of the ice. Yeah, I definitely agree, Paul. Um, you know, but for my money, I know you said, down year for, for Vasilevsky, and that's reflected in, you know, a goals against average that's uh, the worst since uh, his 2015-16 season. Uh, similar with the, the save percentage, the, the worst one he's had since that year. Um, but that's still a 2.65 goals against average and a, a 9.15 save percentage. So I still think he's, he's pretty good. Um, Brian Elliott's numbers weren't great, so hopefully they just, you know, don't see a whole lot of Brian Elliott here in the postseason. That would be the ideal for them. So, all right, we'll break down these teams. I'll uh, I'll start with Toronto. No, of course not. Of course <laughs> I'm not going to start Toronto. I'll take a look at the Tampa Bay Lightning here. Look, it's the same, for the most part, it's the same lineup we've seen the last three years playing uh, in the Stanley Cup Finals here. Uh, you know, Steven Samkos. Braden Point, Nikita Kucherov on the first line. We've got Brandon Hagel, Anthony Sorelli, Alex Kalorn on the second line. Third line comes through of Ross Colton, Nick Paul, Mikey Isamont. Um, probably Tanner Janot would fill into that Isamont role, I would guess, uh, once cleared to play. He's not going to play game one, but uh, door open potentially for a game two return. And then a really veteran uh, strong fourth line here that, uh, again, w- one of the best, I think, in the postseason here. Patrick Maroon, pierre Edouard, Belmar, and Corey Perry. That's a that's a tough veteran group to, to play against here. Uh, overall, you know, in terms of, of how they looked uh, this season, uh, you know, you've got, uh, obviously, Stamkos and Kucherov, uh, some of the best. Kucherov, 113 points this year. Braden Point, 51 goals on the season. Stamkos, 84 points. Uh, and, you know, production kind of continues here. Brandon Hagel with 30 goals and 64 points. Kalorn, 27 goals, 64 points. So they've got some strong production there. Uh, you could maybe argue they're a little top six heavy, not as much depth beyond that. Uh, defensively, they've got a pair of offensively-minded studs here. Victor Hedman 
He'll pair up with Nick Perbix, uh, Mikhail Sergachev, who actually Sergachev looks like he's going to be on the number one power play, at least for game one here over Hedman. He's with Darren Radish. And then Ian Cole, Eric Cernak, and Zach Bogosian probably round out that that last pack. The three of them will probably move around there. Sergachev with 64 points on the year. Uh, Victor Hedman with just 49. So you could call that a down year for Hedman, but a down year for Hedman is better than most defensemen do in a regular season. So I really like, again, I like this group. Uh, You know, they've played really well um they've played a lot of extra hockey i I think that can't be oversold a lot of extra hockey the last few years um so they could be a little bit more fatigued you know overall um but i you know this is still a really good team i I think anybody that's coming into this and i I know you're not paul but anybody coming into this thinking toronto is going to come in and steamroll this one in in four games or something is is sorely mistaken but Paul, how do you see your Leafs break break them down for me? Well, I, I'll begin with the the core four offensively. Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner had another great year offensively. Mar- Matthews a little more inju- injury riddled in the first half, played through a, a wrist injury, and a, kind of remarkable when you think about it that with that wrist injury, he still compiled a forty goal season in seventy games play, seventy two games played. So good on him. Mitch Marner led the club in scoring with ninety nine points again in the running for all-star votes recognition at the end of the year as maybe the top right winger in the league or one of the two or three. And Michael Bunting rounds out that top unit. He was a guy that was missing last year's series. They lost him to injury. So that's a plus to have him back in the fold because he brings that agitating, uh, edgy style of play to the top line and kind of insulates Marner and Matthews a little bit. They were without that aspect last year in this matchup. Uh, John Tavares, Willie Nylander, Again, point-per-game players this season. They will be linked with, uh, it shows on our, li- our depth chart, Ryan O'Reilly, but I could see Callie Yarncroft slipping in to that role and putting Tavares at center. And uh, Yarncroft having his best offensive season as a pro with 20 goals this season. That didn't hurt the club at all when he played top six minutes. I'd like to see them stretch this roster by putting Ryan O'Reilly at the helm of the third scoring line and moving Achari to the wing alongside Kerfoot. I think O'Reilly would... New, certainly neutralize and then some anything that the, the the Wolves have on the bottom six. And then beyond that, it's Zach, uh, Zach Aston Reese and Sam Lafferty and David Kemp, one of the better checking fourth lines in the league. Certainly, you talked about the physicality of, of the Tampa fourth line unit. They, they could be uh, a handful at times. But I'll also point to a game late in the season, AJ, where, where Pat Maroon uh, took on uh, – a little bit more than he could chew when he when he fought Luke Shen and Shen dismantled him to the point where I think that it's got to give him a pause to think. Last year he challenged the Leafs' entire bench because he was running roughshod over this team. They didn't have an answer. The Leafs have upgraded their physicality significantly, and I think that's going to wind up neutralizing the fourth line of Tampa in this series. And I think that uh, the Leafs could get some offense out of their bottom six where they didn't last year. So that's where I think the scales will be tipped in terms of the series. The Leafs offense is deeper and it's meaner. And that's what you need against the Tampa club. That's the recipe for success. The Tampa used, and I think the Leafs are going to flip the script here. I really do. On the defensive side of the puck, the Leafs are going to start off with DJ Brody and Jake McCabe as a pair of very solid defenders. Uh, McCabe went about 10 or 12 games before he was on the ice for even a goal against in his tenure in Toronto this season. 
after the trade deadline. And TJ Brody is simply put the league's the Leafs' best defensive defenseman, bar none. And so that's going to be a group that gets a lot of assignments against the top uh, Tampa scoring unit. Then they're going to counter with uh, Mark Giordano and Justin Hall. Giordano, the league, league, league leader in block shots. Plus Justin Hall, serviceable on the on the PK for this club. Then that puts Morgan Riley in a third pairing situation with Luke Shen, if you can imagine. Riley has had a bit of an injury plague campaign, but playing some of his best hockey in the last month and a half of the schedule, putting the injury bug behind him and again anchoring the Leafs' potent power play. Luke Shen, nicknamed the human eraser, showed me all that I needed to see in terms of the hitting that he brings to every night on the ice. And again, will be a key factor, even though he'll play like 15 to 17 minutes a night for the Leafs in this series. But I think, again, goes a long way toward neutralizing the, the Bolts' physicality. So I am very optimistic, AJ, because of that upgrade and, and the, the uh, message that Shen sent through Maroon to the rest of the Bolts that say the Leafs will not be pushovers. And, in fact, they're going to win this series and get it done right. They're gonna, I think they're going to win it in six games. They've, they've beaten Tampa a couple of times, uh, once on the road this season, uh, as well, and uh, they're no strangers to success in Tampa in their history. In the last several years, they've owned the ice in Tampa. So I think Tampa's up against it when you consider their road record uh, very substandard. They ended ended the season on a downer, as I said, in their last 20 games. Leafs are ready for them this time. I think nothing has changed in this series, <laughs> Paul. I think we'll see the Lightning get their wins at home and uh, steal one at some point. Uh, and we'll go seven games here. And, uh, yeah, so I'll take the Lightning in seven. All right, partner. Well, that wraps up our look at the Eastern and Western Conference first round of the playoffs. Bit of a lengthy episode, AJ, but I think you and I share the excitement of the first round of the playoffs in the NHL like nothing else that we'll see in any other major league around the league, around the sports landscape in North America. So I can't wait for it to get started tonight and uh, look forward to seeing how things unfold we'll remind our listeners that our next episode is going to be on the eve of the second round i'm going to give you a chance for final thoughts aj you're you're going into this postseason without your penguins in there are you still going to have an interest in seeing uh, the usual possible upsets in the first round and, and the great hockey that we're going to be privy to yeah, I mean, I think I'm more inclined uh, for chaos, right? Like, uh, if I <laughs> I just want upsets galore and and everything, um, you know, for for me as far as uh, <clears throat> who to cheer for, probably gonna just cheer for Flurry. Um, so, <laughs> gonna hope uh, you know he can get number four there with uh, with Minnesota. Um, Paul, do we want to make before everything starts? Do we want to make a prediction? Do you have a winner? I mean, I assume it's probably just, you know, Toronto, but do you have do you have a realistic winner that you want to pick uh, to, to lift the cup this year? I think Colorado is going to be the team to beat again. I, I like what they did down the stretch. They're going to get healthier. I eventually think they're going to get Landeskog in the fold. So the riches gets, get rich, get richer. And uh, until they get beat, I'm still I still think they're the team to beat. And I, I think they are the class of the Western Conference. So I, I think they're a team to watch out for and probably hoist the club the cup again. How about you? Um, well, just a, a point there. Landis Gog is not coming back. He's he's ruled himself out entirely. Um, I'm going to go a bit of an upset path here, um, but looking at their their general path to the the playoffs, I kind of like the Rangers. Um, I think they can get past New Jersey. 
Then they would either have to play the Islanders or Hurricanes. I, I think they can win that one as well. So really for me, the only hiccup for them would potentially be either Boston uh, or, you know, the Lightning once they dispatch your your Maple Leafs here. But, uh, yeah, I think I think the Rangers could be a sneaky option to, to come out of the East. Uh, I agree Colorado probably uh, comes out of the West as well. So uh, maybe the Rangers uh, – Rangers might be my pick, uh, I think. I'll take Leafs in Colorado, and I'd say the Leafs are going to win it. How about that? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> surprise, surprise. As always, folks, we remind you that we're here to assist you with all we assist you with all things relating to your enjoyment of fantasy hockey. So we encourage you to send your comments or question always on Twitter, where you can follow me, Paul Bruno at Statsman22. You can follow AJ at AJ Schultz24. Again, reminder: we'll be back to uh, to you with our second round previews as soon as those matchups are set. Until then, enjoy the first round of the NHL playoffs. Thanks a lot for listening.